after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples who were very confused and very frightened. And after convincing them that he was alive, it was really him, they weren't seeing a ghost, he was raised from the dead, he said these words to them, found in the Gospel of Luke, they'll be on the screen. These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. It's a remarkable statement Jesus made. Jesus said, the entire Bible is about me. All of the Hebrew scripture, we call it the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures is about me, he said. Whatever was written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he gives that basic threefold division of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. The Jewish people refer to their Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, as the Tanakh. And that's just an acronym that stands for the threefold division of the Old Testament. Tanakh Torah, it's the T sound. That stands for the law, the book of Moses. The Nevaim, those are the prophets. And the Kituvim, those are the writings. It's the entire corpus of the Hebrew Scripture. Jesus said, it's all about me. It's written about him and it's fulfilled in him, especially his suffering and death. His resurrection and exaltation and the forgiveness of sins in him. So he says that in verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead. And that forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name. And then imagine, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I think that means... He taught them how to read the Bible. He opened their eyes. He taught them, this is what the Bible's all about that you've been reading. I think it's the same thing that he did a few days earlier from these events with those two disciples who were walking on this road up to Emmaus outside of Jerusalem who were very discouraged because Jesus had been put to death, and they were confused, and they were frightened, and Jesus came and walked with them and didn't know, they didn't know it was him, and he said this to them. I'll put this on the screen also. Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Messiah, the Christ, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets... He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Imagine. 
He walked them through the whole Bible and said, it's about me. We often long to have been there. Wouldn't that have been a good Bible study to be part of? Wonder what he said. What content of that study? I often tell people, and I remind myself, that in one sense, we are there. We know what he said. It's called the New Testament. It's not a mystery. This is where the authors of the New Testament got their understanding of the Bible as fulfilled in Christ, and that's what they wrote for us. So we can be there. It's all fulfilled in Christ. In my opinion, there is no book in the New Testament that explains how the whole Bible is about and fulfilled in Jesus than the book of Hebrews. And so it's to that book that I invite us to turn this morning to Hebrews and chapter 1 as we commence our study. And my prayer is that as we study the scriptures, this book, and see how the author explains that all of scripture, all the scriptures are about Christ, that our hearts would burn within us as we behold the magnificence of Christ. That's what those two disciples said their hearts were doing. They remember, they said, weren't our hearts burning within us when he was with, speaking to us and explaining to us the scriptures? Oh, it's my prayer. Our hearts would burn within us as we behold the magnificence of Christ, who is better than anything, the superiority of Christ over everything, everything. And we would be drawn to him and adore him. That's the effect of this book of Hebrews. Let me read for us the first four verses of chapter 1, which are often referred to as the prologue. Let me read and then just give a word of introduction to this great letter. You can follow in your Bible or on the screen. This is how he starts. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Immediately, from the word go, we are confronted in the opening verses with the superiority of Jesus the Son. However, we don't yet know why. Why does he start like this? Unlike every other letter in the New Testament, there's no greeting. Kind of rude. There's no hello, welcome. 
greeting. We're accustomed to that in the New Testament. And those greetings tell us who is writing. It's where the writer introduces himself. To whom he is writing. And maybe something about the reason he is writing. We have none of that here. Is this a, a letter like we're used to in the New Testament? Or is this, or is this a literary essay? Is this like a treatise, theological treatise about Christ? We might think that at the beginning. But as we read it, it becomes clear that indeed it is a letter. But it's a letter unlike any other letter in the New Testament. Let me just say a few words about Hebrews. Let me just give kind of a big introduction to the book, and then we'll try to just dip our toe into the first verse or so of this letter. Who's the author of Hebrews? The author, we don't know. Again, that's unusual. Unlike any other letter in the New Testament, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. The author didn't sign it. He didn't start with his name like they almost always start. He didn't sign it at the end. So we don't know from the letter itself, nor is the testimony of the early church uniform or conclusive. Like they tell us emphatically who wrote the letter. We don't know. Most likely, it's not Paul. Now, I don't want to belabor this point and give you all the reasons it's not Paul. <laughs> there are many reasons I think it's not Paul. Paul always signs his letters. But one of those reasons from the text itself, from the author himself, is found over in chapter 2. You just glance over the page, maybe. In chapter 2, in verse 3, where he's giving some information about himself, the writer, he says, after, he's talking about the gospel, this good news of Jesus, it says, after it, this gospel was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. It's referring, obviously, to the apostles, so this author is not claiming to be in that group. It is very unlikely Paul would ever say that. In fact, he says the exact opposite in his letters. I receive my gospel from no one but Christ himself. So this is not Paul. There's no a direct appeal to apostolic authority in this letter. Now, it has authority, but he doesn't claim to be in those original apostles. So who, who wrote it? We don't know from all the evidence. And we, we could... You could read volumes on that of people speculating. And at the end of the day, it just becomes speculation. As Origen, the church father, wrote, I think, this is in the late 300s, he just says, as to the authorship of Hebrews, only God knows. That's right. I do think, however, it's probably some associate with Paul, close to Paul in some way. We are told at the end of the letter, he tells them to greet Timothy, or to welcome Timothy, so we know Timothy is Paul's co-worker here, so this letter likely falls under the shadow of the Apostle Paul, his authority, kind of like the Gospel of Luke. Luke wasn't one of the original authors, but it falls under the kind of authority of Paul. 
So author, we don't know. Destination, we don't know. (laughs) He doesn't say it. He doesn't spell it out. To whom he's writing, that is where this letter is being sent. Rome is possible. The only reason I say that is because at the end of the letter, in chapter 13, the author will say, those who came from Italy greet you. Maybe a reference that there he's writing to those in Italy and those who had come from Italy are sending greetings back home. That's plausible. We don't know. It's, it's likely written around the early 60s. This is a very early letter, just like the New Testament letters. The reason we imply that is because it's before, it seems to be certainly before the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD. That's when the temple is destroyed. If that event had happened, no doubt the author would have made much of that. He's going to talk about ongoing temple ritual as if it's going on in his day. So likely before that. Who were the recipients? We don't know where they lived necessarily, but who were they? So here we just have to glean from reading the letters. So I think there's pretty good consensus, and I would agree that they are likely Jewish, mostly Jewish Christians who were tempted to revert to Judaism. Their brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, not writing to non-Christians. It's not just an apologetic. He's writing to a congregation, to a church, probably a single, mostly Jewish congregation who for different reasons were tempted to turn from Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, back to Judaism and temple worship and sacrifices and the law. And they were tempted to do that either to avoid persecution because persecution has begun. We'll see that in the letter. Or maybe to obtain what they felt was some assurance of the forgiveness of their sins, their standing with God as part of the ancient people of God and those outward forms. Maybe that's some of their temptation, but they're tempted to return. These readers are obviously very familiar with the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Scriptures. They're very familiar. Our author, by the way, is going to quote... The Old Testament, 35 times. He knows it well. He assumes they know it. The title that we have in our Bible, Hebrews, the epistle or letter to the Hebrews, now that that doesn't come until the kind of late 2nd century, so late 100, so maybe over 100 years after this was written, but it tells you something of what the early church thought of the audience. They thought they were Jewish, Hebrews. I think that's right. So a lot we don't know about the book, but let me turn to something I think we do know that we can discern by reading the book. What is the message of the book of Hebrews? What's he up to? What's it all about? As I said, he doesn't spell it out for us at the beginning. You have to read the letter and read the letter to understand what he's doing. It's not just a theological treatise on the supremacy of Christ, though there is much about the supremacy of Christ. What is the message? Let me give it to you in two parts. First the purpose, then the argument. What's his purpose? Why is he writing this? He has a pastoral or practical purpose. So I put it like this. To exhort readers, including us, 
to hold fast to Christ and not fall away. That's his exhortation. Hold fast to Christ. Draw near to God in Christ and don't fall away. Don't turn away. Don't quit. Or to put it positively, persevere. Hold on. Keep believing to the end. As you read this letter, as I said, it might start you thinking it's just a treatise about Christ, but soon as you, you read, it, it becomes filled with commands, exhortations, a few dozen of them. <laughs> Hold fast, be diligent, press on, pursue, run with endurance, fix your eyes. And this letter is punctuated by five warning passages. Warning about the consequences of falling away. And they are perhaps the most sobering, even frightening warnings in the Bible, in the New Testament. We'll see him. He's serious. Now, we'll develop this because this, this might be new to your thinking, saying, you mean, you mean Christians have to be exhorted to hold fast to Christ? We have to be exhorted to press on, to persevere? Well, obviously so. We'll think about that. Why is that and how does that work? At the end of this book, by the way, or letter, we should call it an epistle, the end of this letter, in chapter 13 and verse 22, when he's kind of signing off, Here's the title he gives his own letter. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, bear with this, here's his title, this word of exhortation. That's what he calls the letter. Then I love what he says. I've written to you briefly. (laughs) 13, rich chapter. I've written to you pretty briefly. Bear with this word of exhortation. That, That phrase, word of exhortation, is really a description of a sermon, what we think of as a sermon. This letter is a sermon in letter form, written form. And the way the author writes it, as you read through this, and I would encourage you, it takes about 45 minutes to read the whole book. So carve out some time this week, 45 minutes, and just read it. Don't stop and try to figure it all out. Just read it and let it affect you like a sermon. So think, 45-minute sermon. It's about right, give or take. 45-minute sermon, and it's full of exposition of Scripture and exhortation from his exposition. It's a great sermon in itself, and that's what he calls it, a word of exhortation. And the way he writes it, it makes it feel like he's present with the congregation, with the assembly, delivering his sermon. So it's distinct in its form. So I think that's the main purpose of why he's writing, to exhort us to hold fast to Christ, to not give up. Here's the second part of the message, the argument. The argument that's underneath the exhortation. Jesus and his saving work is better than anything in the Old Covenant, what we call the Old Testament. Jesus and his saving work is better than anything, anything 
you could turn to, anything in the Old Covenant. Now, that's the heart of the theology of this letter. This letter is filled with theology about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. And he's going to show us and argue that Jesus is superior to everything. He's superior to everything related to what went before in the Old Covenant law. All of that was mere shadows and types. The reality is here in Christ. Why would you ever turn back? Why would you ever turn away? Jesus is better. He's superior. He's superior to the prophets. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Joshua. He's superior to the priest. He's superior to the tabernacle. He's superior to the sacrifices. The reality is here. Jesus is better. He's going to use that word better. This Greek word better 13 times in the letter. Watch for it as you read. Jesus brings a better hope, a better covenant, better promises, better sacrifice, a better inheritance. He's better. (laughs) The unique emphasis of the author on Jesus and what he did is on his priesthood. His high priesthood. That will become a dominant feature as he unfolds Jesus being better. Do you know? The writer of Hebrews is the only New Testament author to explicitly refer to Jesus as high priest. That's where we get it. The book of Hebrews. This was transformative to my life as a high school, senior in high school, mostly atheist, mostly agnostic, denying that there really is a God and having an older brother come home who's the Lord has rescued and saved in prison and life transforming. He's confronting me with the Bible and what the Bible says. And I was raised in a pretty religious background where we had priests. And I was told all the time, if you want your sins forgiven, you go to a priest. And it's up what a priest does for you to be accepted by God through sacraments and a priesthood. And I remember for the first time in my life, I'd never opened a Bible. I, I, I didn't know the Bible. Someone pointed me to the book of Hebrews. And reading about the high priest, Jesus, and I don't need another priest? It's done. It's in him. His sacrifice is perfect. And right now he's exalted at the right hand of God for me. I go through him. That blew my mind and transformed my life. Pray you know him as your only priest. So that will be a distinguishing mark of this letter. So there's the message. Let me, let me just try to make sure you understand the, the connection between the, the purpose and the argument. 
It's this, the theology of the letter, which is so rich, the theology, the doctrine of Christ, the superiority of Christ, the priesthood of Christ, the new covenant, the theology of the letter serves the exhortation. He's not writing simply to give us a treatise of Christ. He's writing that we would hold fast to Christ because he's better and he shows us that he's better. His theology has a pastoral point or purpose pastoral aim that we would treasure Christ and never give up since Jesus and his work is so great it would be a folly to turn away from him where where will you turn where will you turn if you turn from him that's what he's trying to show you back to the old covenant shadows and pictures which have all been fulfilled and surpassed by Christ? No. This rich, unsurpassed theology of Jesus and his priestly work served this very practical end to hold fast to Christ. Let me, let me just show you two examples. Right? Just by kind of way of intro overview, just look at chapter 4. If you have your Bible there, I'll put this on the screen also if you don't. Chapter 4. Let me just show you two examples of this just by way of, of getting our feet wet here. Just overview. I think, let me read chapter 4, verse 14. Here is the book of Hebrews in one verse. You want the book of Hebrews in one verse? I think this verse does it for us. Listen to what he says. And by the way, this verse comes on the heels of about a chapter and a half of pretty stern warning. And he says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So there's the theology of Hebrews in one line. We, we have this high priest. This is what thrilled my soul. You mean I have it? Yes, we have this high priest. And where is he? He's in the heavens before God. Who is he? The Son of God. We'll see what that means. So there's the theology. Here's the exhortation. Let us hold fast our confession. You see it? You see how it works? Rich theology serves the exhortation. Since we have this, why would you let it go? Hold fast our confession. He means our confession of Christ as our high priest. So there's Hebrews. You want Hebrews in one verse? There it is. I'll give you one other example that's a parallel example. Just fast forward to chapter 10. I'll also put this on the screen. Chapter 10 of Hebrews in verse 19. Now, this comes on the heels of about three or four chapters of developing the rich theology of who Jesus is as our high priest. But he doesn't stop there and say, period, that's all I wanted to say. Verse 19, since therefore, brothers and sisters, we have, there's that language again, we have confidence. That's what we sang this morning. To enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. He's our high priest. He's there. Verse 21. Since we have a great priest over the house of God. Here's the exhortation. Let us first draw near. Draw near. You can draw near with absolute assurance that your sins are forgiven. We'll explore that. That's just tremendous. And then verse 23. 
let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We have it, hold fast. There it is. So here's my one-line summary of the book of Hebrews. Here's Hebrews in a nutshell, one line. Here it is. Hold fast to Christ because he is better. Hold fast to Christ because he is better. He is our high priest. There is nothing, there is no hope beyond Jesus. There's nothing better coming in God's salvation plan. It is here in Christ fulfilled. The entire story of history since the creation of the world. This is what Jesus was trying to show his disciples after he was raised from the dead. The entire story of history since creation has been moving toward him and now he is here. Now he's come. He is everything. Do you you know, Christian, what, what a privilege you have, I have, to live now? To see the fulfillment in Christ, to behold it. What the prophets were longing for and searching for. All of history has been moving to him, and now he's here. He is all in all. So this writer will show us the glory and all-sufficiency of Christ that we might hold fast to him and not fall away. That we might be preoccupied with Jesus. That we might fix, fix your eyes on Jesus. Are you? Are you preoccupied with him? He will not disappoint. There is nothing else. He is all sufficient. So that's Hebrews in a nutshell. Let's go to the opening verses. So turn back chapter 1 with me. And let me just, as I said, just dip our toe here in the beginning. The first four verses that I read are often called a prologue. The opening verses are essential for understanding the entire letter. So you don't know exactly what he's doing until you read the letter, and then you realize, oh, these opening verses, the prologue here, prepare us for the upcoming message of the letter. All, really, the key themes of this letter are here in the prologue, these first four verses. The superiority of Christ, the Son and who he is, the priestly work of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ. It's just here in kind of this prologue form. Prologue, just just this way of introducing the letter. Like the Gospel of John has that prologue before he gets to the narrative, what Aaron quoted earlier. Now, we don't have time for that four verses because they are immense. So how about a verse and a half? Just, and I'm going to do my best because there's a lot here. Verse, verse, one, verse one and a half. So the first four verses is really one sentence made up of three clauses. So here's the first clause of, of the first sentence. And I'm just going to warn you, this is how Hebrews is written. It is a literary masterpiece, I think. It really is. No, it's not better than Romans, I don't think. But it's probably written better. Just the way it's written. And... It's really rich, so just brace yourself here as we jump in. So let me just reread that first clause or verse and a half. Here's how he opens the letter. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, 
in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son. So just stop there. Let me make three observations from that first clause, that verse and a half. Just three. Number one, God has spoken. God has spoken. Now, this is not his main point, but let's not move past it too quickly. God has spoken. He's going to say it twice, both in verse 1. God spoke long ago. Verse 2, God has spoken in these last days. God is a speaking God. Don't pass over that. He communicates with his people. And he does it a lot. That's what the author is trying to say. Many portions and in many ways. He hasn't been stingy in his communication. That is, he makes himself and his ways known to finite human beings. We should just pause and marvel for a moment. God speaks that we might know him. He he hasn't left us in the dark just trying to piece together. Oh, yes, creation reveals him. (laughs) There's God. But he hasn't left us just trying to piece together in our own reasoning what God is like. People do that, you know. I think God is like this or my God is like this. He's spoken. That we might know him and know his ways. Pay attention to his word. Just a couple notes under this. He has spoken. Now, he has not spoken to us audibly or directly. How has he spoken? He has spoken through spokesmen called prophets who wrote it down, called Scripture. He has spoken through spokesmen, called prophets, who wrote it down. Do you see that in verse 1? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, by the prophets. This is how he has chosen to communicate. Not just writing it on the sky or writing it on the wall or just whispering in your ear. He has chosen in his wisdom to speak through spokesmen called prophets who then write it down for us. This is what he does. And the result of their writing it down is what we call scripture. And that word, that inscripturated word, that written word, is God's very word. A God-breathed word. When our author in verse 1 talks about God speaking by the prophets in many portions, in many ways, he's referring to the Old Testament, the written word of God. But he's using language of speaking because that's what God does. He speaks, he communicates by prophets who write it down so that Paul will say all graphe, that is all writings, all scripture is theonoustos, God breathed out. Product of God's mouth speaking. Peter 
one of these early apostles, witnesses, says that there's no prophecy of Scripture writing that's a matter of one's own interpretation, one's own origination, not just people thinking, ah, I just think I'm smart enough to figure this out. No, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. He associates speaking by the prophets with Scripture. So that, note this, the Scriptures, both the Old and New Testaments, are the Word of God. That's what we believe. That's what this book claims over and over and over again. Literally thousands of times in the Old Testament, we read the words, the Lord says, the Lord says, the Lord spoke. It it claims that. The Old and New Testaments. Again, there's this continuity. Do you see it between verses 1 and 2? Again, the, the verb here for speak is used twice. In the past, he spoke, and in these days, he spoke. It's all of it, old, new, what we call, very helpfully, by the way, our Bibles are divided between Old and New Testaments. It's all his word. Do you, do you want to hear God speak? Open the book. Open the book. Don't wait just for some experience some leading. I believe God leads through his word. But open the book. He has spoken. Second, God has spoken in two distinct stages. That's part of what the author is getting at. He has spoken in two distinct stages or eras. Do you see the contrast between these two stages, these Two verses. So he spoke, what, long ago? That is previously. In the verse 2, he spoke in these last days. So those are the two stages. Long ago, previously, he's referring to the Old Testament era. By the way, it's been 400 years since God spoke through a prophet. So he spoke long ago, That's old, and now in these last days. He spoke in the past to the fathers, and now he speaks to us. So you see the two distinctions. And the way he spoke is different. So again, note these. In former times, we call Old Testament, he spoke in various ways, in various times, through various prophets. He spoke a lot, in a lot of different ways, by the prophets. He spoke in historical acts, like Exodus, A lot of different acts we see. He spoke through signs that he gave. He spoke through visions. He spoke through dreams. He spoke through audible voices. He spoke through angels. And he did so over 1,500 years. Many times. Many ways. By the prophets. Starting with Moses. Moses wrote for us the first five books of the Bible. So the prophets are the ones he speaks through. They interpret for us those signs or those historical events through which he was speaking. And then we have the former prophets like kings that we went through and the later prophets, the entirety of the Old Testament. So he spoke in a variety of ways over a long period of time. Yet contrast that now. In these last days, he has spoken in the person and work of his son. The author wants you to feel the contrast 
between the many and varied ways over a long period of time and these last days in his son. When he says, do you see it, verse 2, in these last days, he doesn't mean simply, well, recently God's been doing this. That's a Hebrew phrase, the last days are the days the prophets were looking forward to when what they saw would be fulfilled. The last days. It's the last stage of God's redemptive history. When those final, we could call the final days, the end times, the eschaton is the word he uses. It's the final stage. And that final stage began with the coming of Jesus and will be consummated with his return. So that right now we are in the last days. We are in this final stage of redemptive history. It's inaugurated by his first coming. Again, we'll see that. That's why he says, again, look closely at verse 2. In these last days, the ones you're living in, that began with the coming of Jesus. And he contrasts the multiplicity of the ways of revelation God speaking in the old phase or the old stage to the singularity of the Son, His Son. This speaking is different. It's entirely centered in the Son. It is the Son revelation. Jesus is not just another of the prophets, even the greatest of the prophets, who shows up and just gives us more about God. He is the revelation. He is the word. The son. That's the distinction. The son himself, as he comes in the flesh, is this word, is the revelation of God. So that number three, last one, we'll finish. God has spoken definitively In his son. This is the main point of the author. God has spoken definitively in his son. I like that word. You know what definitive means? It means final and complete. If I say I have the definitive answer, it means there's no other answer. I have the final and complete answer. God has spoken definitively in the Son. We are moving from the old phase being that of a promise to fulfillment in the Son. So that, again, note these things. God's former revelation, this other stage where he spoke through the prophets in many portions in many ways, can only be fully understood through the Son. His fulfillment. That's what Jesus was teaching his disciples. Everything that was written about me in the law and the prophets and the writings must be fulfilled. You don't understand it until you read it in light of Christ, his fulfillment. That's what our author is trying to get at. Yes, all of that in the Old Testament is authoritative word of God, but it's partial. And now the completion has come, the final, decisive definitive word. When he says, again, in these last days, that's the days of fulfillment that have come in the Son so that, this last note, 
This revelation in the Son is complete and final. There's no other stage. There's no further word. He completes it. He's the fulfillment of it. There's there's nothing else coming beyond Jesus. Like, Jesus was good. Now we have this, like Muhammad. No. The Son has come. He's the final and complete revelation, the final speaking of God. It's all in Him. There's nothing outside of Him. So that to know God is to know Jesus. You have to know God through Jesus. He's the final, complete revelation of God speaking. We must listen to him. That's why we need Hebrews, this book, because that's what the author, I said, maybe I didn't say this, should have said this, that that first verse and a half is the interpretive key for the book of Hebrews. It's a brilliant first statement clause. He's trying to say, we are moving from what is incomplete and partial to complete and final in Christ, and he's going to show it to us. We are moving to the superiority and fulfillment in the Son. That's superior, superior to everything that's ever come before. That's what the writer is going to show us. We are, we are in for a feast. We're in for a treat to see Jesus is better. This morning, you are either with him by faith as your high priest, as clinging to him for your hope, or you are apart from him. There's no neutral ground. There's nothing else outside of him. And I plead with you, if you are apart from him, come to him. By faith, draw near and take him as your only savior and your only priest, your only hope, before God and it is a certain hope well look forward Christian if you're a Christian to feasting on the supremacy of Jesus fix your eyes on him and hold fast to him let me pray Father show us your son Holy Spirit Magnify the Son as all-sufficient, as better than anything else, as our only and sure high priest in whom we have forgiveness and we can draw near to you in full assurance of faith. Oh, do your work in us through this letter, I pray in Jesus' name.